So last Sunday we talked about some detours in Abraham's journey. There were times over the course of Abraham's life when he goes south, when he acts out of fear instead of faith. And then this week, it it sort of hit me in a new way that many of you who are so accustomed to sitting here in these seats have been sat here for a couple of months now. And I know that so many of you who have been watching these services from your couch, your bed, your dining room table, or a chair on your back porch, find comfort and renewal and community and encouragement sitting in these very seats. Perhaps even in ways that you didn't fully realize until recently. And maybe you remember the last time you were here before we had to put our in-person gatherings on hold. At the time, of course, you had no idea it would be the last time for a while that you would be sitting here. And yet, here we are. You see, sometimes we create our own detours by going south, by leaving fellowship with God and going into the Negev, into the dry and barren places. But sometimes detours find us. They spring up on our journey unexpectedly, and we're we're left to navigate them as best we can in the moment. Either way, detours challenge us to continue to move forward from a different seat. And of course, by its very nature, a detour does not immediately lead you in in the exact direction that you're ultimately wanting to go. It veers off course. It's the scenic route. It leads you down roads that you've never traversed and, and coerces you to take wrong turns. But the idea of a detour is that eventually you'll end up back on the path toward your destination, provided you keep moving and going and figuring it out. In writing about Abraham, Paul says that Abraham believed, even in times of hopelessness, that against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Paul talked about Abraham's steadfastness by saying that while still waiting for his promised offspring, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead And that Sarai's womb was also dead without weakening in his faith. Abraham, we're told, did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God. And because of of Abraham's belief in God and in God's power to accomplish his will, his belief was credited to him as righteousness. And on the surface, that doesn't seem to match up with with parts of the story that we find in Genesis. I mean, he ends up having a child with Sarai's servant, Hagar, because, because Abram and Sarai, before their name changes, are convinced that God must be doing all this in, in a different way than they had expected. So what gives? How, how is that a picture of, of unwavering faith? 
how does Paul's description match up with the detours? I think we find Abraham's faith and belief on display in his going and in his doing. The first word, first word that we're told God speaks to Abram is the word go. And in response, Abram gets up and goes. He doesn't always go in the exact way that God instructs. and He sometimes lets fear get the best of him, but he keeps going. And in the end, I think the going and the doing is, is kind of the point. When James wrote about faith, he said, faith without action is dead. James would say that if your faith isn't moving you to action, then it's, it's not really faith. It may be some sort of cerebral belief, but it's not faith. Abraham's faith repeatedly pushes him outside of his comfort zone, which is exactly where we would expect mistakes to happen. It shouldn't be at all surprising to us that, that a man from an ancient agricultural society gets scared when he finds himself in the middle of a famine in a foreign and unknown land. All of this is new for Abraham. He's sitting in a different seat. But leaving your comfort zone isn't just where mistakes happen. It's where growth happens, too. There is no growth without moving outside of, of what you're comfortable with or what you already know. And while fear begs us to stay confined to the walls of what we already know, maturation and spiritual formation necessitate a journey into what we have not yet taken hold of. That journey will almost certainly feature a series of setbacks, failures, and obstacles. Because no exploration into new territory can be charted on the front end with a perfect route from point A to point B. But hope, hope allows us to face the difficulties that we face in that journey without weakening in our faith. It strengthens us so that we do not waver in our trusting of God. Leaving our comfort zone is a phrase that many of us have probably grown up hearing in church settings. It's just that we often connect it, I think, to evangelism more so than spiritual growth. But when it comes to worship and encountering God and being refueled and, and recharged and renewed in the Spirit, maybe there's a benefit to being forced out of our comfort zone into new and uncharted territory. Territory where we'll be compelled to try new things, to engage new spiritual disciplines and practices, and, and to connect with God and people in new and maybe even risky and challenging ways. Maybe there's value in having to sit in a different seat for a little while. One of the parables that Jesus tells is, is one that we call the parable of the talents. And in this story, Jesus talks about a man who was going to go away on a long journey. But before he left, he entrusted his wealth to his servants. 
He gave one servant five bags of gold, another two bags, and a third servant one bag. In the story, that's all we're really told about the setup and the exchange. But from what we know of the culture at the time, that would not seem odd or out of place at all. It would be common for, for a wealthy landowner who was going to travel on a long journey to leave his servants in charge of his estate while he was gone. And the servants then were expected to be good stewards of the master's possessions. And so in this story, the first servant goes out and he does stuff. And he ends up doubling his money. The second servant, he goes out and does stuff. And he doubles his money. But the third servant, the third servant's scared. The third guy begins to ask himself a lot of what-if questions. And nothing stops us in our tracks faster than a good, fearful what-if question. What if I try and fail? What if I lose some of this money? What if I lose all of this money? What if I'm not good enough, or smart enough, or bold enough? What if I'm pushed outside of my comfort zone or, or what I'm ready for? Granted, all of those questions aren't explicitly in the text of the parable, but you get the idea. He was scared of losing any of his master's money, and, and as a result, he was unwilling to take any risks at all. He was unwilling to extend himself, to, to travel to the new land, to experience life from a different seat. So he took the bag of money and buried it in the ground. So eventually the master, the owner of the estate, comes back. And as he returns, the servants are expected to come and, and to give an account and a report of, of the account of, of the estate that have been entrusted to their care. The first servant reports his returns, and, and so does the second, and, and they're commended and, and rewarded for what they have done. And then comes the third guy. He goes about explaining his fears and the reasons he didn't take any risks. And then almost with hope of, of staving off the anger or ire that he feels is coming from his master, he says, see, here's what belongs to you. Now, interestingly, the first guy's report ends with him saying, see, I have gained five more. The second guy says, see, I have gained two more. But the third guy, the third guy says, see, here is what belongs to you. In other words, yeah, I, I didn't do anything. The master then calls him wicked and lazy before going on to say, basically, you should have done something 
anything. But you did nothing. So why is the master pleased with the first two servants and, and displeased with the third? I mean, sure, the, the extra money is nice. But is it simply because he's greedy? Is it only because he wants more stuff? Or perhaps does it have to do more with the fact that the first two servants did something and the third servant did nothing? In other words, does good stewardship look like playing it safe and burying yourself in a hole until the master returns? Or does good stewardship look like trying stuff and doing things and taking risks? When we stand at the starting line of, of something new, we tend to want to be able to not only see where, where things are going, but we also want some type of assurance that, that we're gonna be successful in, in the things that we're gonna try along the way. And yet, as we marvel at the successful ventures of other people, we would never expect that they did everything right at, at every step in their journey. We would never expect them to have made all the right decisions, to have made all the right turns, in fact, we view their setbacks and their failures and their mistakes as, as inspirational moments because they were able to persevere, persevere through those times and keep going. There will come a time soon when we will be gathered back here in this building and it'll feel different. It'll look different. And in a continued season of social distancing and mask wearing, it will surely be at least somewhat awkward and strange. But we'll be back, sitting in these very seats again. But maybe we needed to get out of our seats for a while in order to be pushed into unknown territory. That doesn't mean that all of this that we are going through is, is some type of divinely orchestrated plan. But it certainly means that we can capture the moment for divine purposes. And that God can work and, and move and transform us as part of this season. Using all of this as a catalyst for change. So let's continue finding ways to explore our own faith. To try new spiritual practices to pursue God in new and perhaps even seemingly risky ways. It's not the people who try and fail who get the bad rap in Scripture. It's the people who dig holes so they don't lose anything. Abraham is, is commended and declared righteous because of his faith, and his faith looked a lot like going and doing and trying. It looked like being willing to experience life from a new seat while trusting that the God he worshipped would be with him wherever he sat.
Each Sunday we remember God's faithfulness toward us as we remember Jesus in the sharing of communion. This is a time that that looks back to the ministry of Christ, his work on the cross, and his resurrection. But it's also a time that, that looks forward as we remember the commitment that those of us who are in Christ have made to go and to do in the name of Jesus. Confident in our new life in Christ. So now we're going to pray our prayer of confession together. I invite you to pray along with us. And then we'll share in a time of of communion and meditation. So let's pray. We confess to each other and to you, our Creator, that we fall short of being what we were created to be and what we have committed ourselves to be. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of Christ. We often seek out the easiest paths, paths of least involvement in places where we might be uncomfortable, or paths of self-centeredness. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of righteousness. We confess that we have not loved you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Bring us out of darkness, Lord, and into the light of your love. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of light. Forgive us for getting so caught up in the world's trappings and its false messages of hope that we lose sight of the hope of the kingdom, which brings healing and peace to a world in turmoil. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of peace. May we resolve to become more kingdom-minded, to be peacemakers here and now. Amen. Amen.